Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. It's 2023, and the podcast is back to a regular cadence twice a month. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, Joe Flint, media reporter for The Wall Street Journal. This is episode 37. From Amazon to Netflix to Disney to working at and covering News Corp to flyover bias and the state of media reporting, we begin with the perilous state of the media industry in 2023. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for doing this. Um, uh, big fan of your work. I know we've we've talked uh, off and on probably for years, but but certainly in the last couple of years in particular. And I wanted to start with you. You know, this is the first podcast I've been doing, uh, certainly in 2023, and actually the first one in in a little while. Took a break from the the podcast. Well, we're doing working on some other things with the book, but um, you know, you wrote a, a, an article uh, for the Wall Street Journal at the end of last year, which was a headline from CNN to Paramount: Media companies cut jobs as pressures mount, and it really does kind of feel like a good, you know, sort of sad kickoff to 2023, which is. Where are we heading in this media industry as we start this year? I mean, I, I think that there there is a sense of unease across the board in a lot of different industries. Um, but I think particularly in the media industry, as you kind of wrote about, not just at those companies that you mentioned, but but in a lot of companies, potentially every company, you know, of a, a, a large scale, this unease as we enter 2023. Where where do you think we stand in the media world right now? I mean, first, I want to say, since that article came out, even my own company has disclosed that they're going to be doing some cutting. And for now, our understanding is that it's not going to necessarily be in the newsroom. But that said, it's it's disconcerting. And I think, as you said, this is going on at every media company. I mean, frankly, let's be honest, it's going on at every company uh, across the country and the globe. I mean, McDonald's is reevaluating and and restructuring. I I think in the case of media, there's a couple different things going on. Uh, One is just general concern about the advertising environment and how tough that's going to be. It's already tough now. And is it going to get tougher in 2023? And what will that mean in terms of revenue? new projections. And then the overwhelming theme of all these companies, whether you're print, digital, linear media, all of that is the future and trying to pivot your business model to wherever you feel your customers are going to be. And the challenge for a lot of these companies is we're seeing even the first movers like like Netflix, we're, we're seeing a realization that, well, that may be where the customers are going to be. Does the financial model really work or does the financial model that we and Wall Street thought would work? is going to work this endless stream of content out there and people will just naturally pay for it and will get sell it very cheap uh David Zaslav, the Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, who's certainly one of the executives under the microscope, said about a month ago, talking to analysts, you know, this industry has been spending more and more on content and giving it away for less and less. And that, in a nutshell, is is the challenge that the business is facing. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. You know, I that we went through a period, I feel like, um, 
last year, but even the year before, where large companies, but but more of like the digital upstarts, you know, the Buzzfeeds of the world, the Vices, the you know, the Foxes. I guess Vox is doing a little bit better, but but those companies were were finding it a little hard to survive because it was like you're either super small, and I do want to talk to you about that, like this this rise of the the real true independence, or you're gigantic, and oh, you know, you're just fine. You know, you're the big ones will 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 always succeed. But now we're seeing, as you mentioned, Amazon, uh, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, you know, Disney. You wrote this great piece uh, uh, along with I think there was like five other authors on it. Really fascinating, kind of TikTok on the whole. Iger, Chapik situation, you know, we're seeing these giant behemoths that you thought were sort of untouchable now feel that unease too. Uh, and, and so I, I wonder in this landscape, is there a model where here's a company that's doing it right, that seems to be, you know, in, in full control of what they're doing, or is the shift in, in audience, in the business model affecting everybody at this point? I don't think anyone is in full control of what they're doing, certainly on the distribution side. I mean, you can look at certain uh, sports leagues, you look at the NFL, their rights fees keep going up and up. So it's tough not to look at the NFL and say, they're not doing it right. right. Uh, and we'll see when the NBA's next deal comes comes around, they'll probably get an increase. So there are, you know, there are certain content makers that have a lot of leverage right now as everyone else is grasping to figure out what's crucial content to keep on their platforms and to build their platforms. Even Netflix, which really built what we now know is the modern day streaming industry. You, you look at some of their moves recently, uh, they're adding commercials, something they said they would never do. They are starting to dip into live programming. They're going to do a Chris Rock special. They bought an awards uh, show to, to stream. They're starting to do these things that they didn't used to do. In many ways, I, I was half joking on uh, Twitter the other day. I said, you know, what's next? An evening newscast with Brian Williams? I mean, they're really sort of turning back to the 20th century with some of their moves. He's but for a job. Fairness, yeah, <laughs> true. In fairness to, to Netflix, they had incredible growth. And then that subscriber growth sort of peaked, and now there's a lot more competitors in there. So yeah, they have to find new ways to sustain the, the growth and the revenue growth that Wall Street has come to expect. So going back to what you were asking, I think for a lot of these companies, these we'll call them content distribution companies, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, even a Netflix, people who make content and then also want to have the platforms in which people view it. They have a lot of challenges and the biggest one and this isn't one facing netflix but facing disney facing paramount facing warner discovery is they are all still heavily into what we call the traditional linear television business and they own lots of cable networks and cable networks generate a ton of money but there's a lot of cord cutting going on so they're in this dilemma of wanting to pivot to streaming but they also want to protect that other business, even though it is a melting ice cube. It is a huge ice cube, and it's going to take a long time to melt. So they want to do all this, but they don't want to just immediately say there's an analyst, Rich Greenfield. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of. He's, yeah. he's very big on, on, you know, embrace the future, drop, you know, cables of dying business. Good luck bundle all the sorts of things he likes to say. But if you're a, a Disney or a, a Warner's and you're still generating basically the lion's share of revenue for your company from these cable networks, 
it's not as simple as that because then you're going to pivot to a model that's not going to generate the same subscriber fees, the same ad dollars, the same eyeballs. So that that's sort of the real challenge. The audience wants one thing, but the businesses need to protect the status quo for at least a little while longer till they figure out how to make the new way pay as good as the old way did. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's also, I, I think, um, I mean, it's just one of the more interesting stories. You talk about this this slowly melting ice cube, and and I don't think anyone at this point would argue that you know the ice cube is melting. But the question is, yeah, as as you talk about for these these giant companies like a Discovery, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, which you know is part of now we've got like CNN in there and and others uh, like companies like Disney. You know, what's the you know where do you where do you put your resources? Where do you put your emphasis? Because yeah, there's still a lot of money to be made in just the linear traditional uh, television or or linear product. But it also makes me think of like uh, Amazon in particular, because you've written a lot about Amazon. Uh, they're involved in those NFL stories in some ways with ratings and, and some of the Amazon deals there. And and I think about it because I guess you would put Amazon in that content distribution category, but they are so much more than that. And, and, and I wonder, like, what is the real um, incentive for an Amazon to to pour tons of resources into content, you know, new exclusive content, knowing that, you know, they are not a, a, a content first and foremost, they are not a content company. I know that they're trying to, to do that as well, but it's like, you know, people that go there to buy their groceries or books or, or, or whatever else that you buy everything on Amazon, why do they feel so invested in adding content to that also on a big level? Well, you just said it, everything on Amazon. And uh, it's tough to grade these companies. It's easy to look at Warner Discovery. Their earnings come out. We see HBO subs are up. HBO subs are down. Advertising is up. Advertising's down. Amazon and, and Apple, to a lesser degree, that's also getting big into this. It's it's tougher because it's a different play for them. And uh, I, yeah, I'm certainly not going to pretend to know what they're what they are thinking at, at Amazon. But from everything I gather, and in talking to folks who who work there and just covering the industry, it is about creating yet another reason to stay on that platform. And uh, similar to Netflix in a way, Netflix, you know, one of the reasons they're doing more, experimenting more with live programming, experimenting more with different kinds of content, uh, the longer you stay on the platform, you're not on someone else's platform. And I think for Amazon, sure, they started out with just books, you know, uh, in what seems like a million years from now, a little quaint idea of selling some books online. And now they have, you know, everything. You buy everything off Amazon and they now own Whole Foods. So they're in the retail side. So they just, they want to be in everyone's life and content is another way into that. So they spend lots of money on the NFL. They spend lots of money on original entertainment programming. They, you know, also acquire programming to sell through, but it's all really, I believe, I believe fundamentally about keeping you on that site, keeping you on that platform, because while you're there, you are a customer and you are likely to keep spending there. Yeah. Time on site. How, how much do you think it dovetails with like the Jeff Bezos investment in the Washington Post? Do you think those are, are different, you know, cost benefit analyses that are happening there in terms of Amazon, big behemoth content versus, you know, Jeff, Jeff, maybe per, more personal Washington Post business plan? I mean, I, I, I think there's some generalities. Certainly you can, you can, bring bring to it but i do think the washington post since it's it's 
quote, technically Jeff's thing and not part of Amazon. It's sort of a different, different world. I mean, I'll be curious to see what his long-term plans for that are if in fact he does decide yeah there's been some rumblings that oh would he sell it or are there other properties he might be interested in looking at to to build out i'm not sure as much as amazon is in media in terms of entertainment and sports i do wonder uh i shouldn't say i do wonder i i don't think they would necessarily look to veer into uh, news and political yeah. commentary. Every now and then they find themselves drawn into one of these uh, things because, you know, they have this platform where pretty much you can, you can also kind of upload stuff there. And sometimes that doesn't work out too well. But uh, I, I just kind of view the post as sort of a, a separate uh, Jeff Bezos thing, which comes with its own complexities of being one of the world's largest companies that has so many tentacles in so many businesses, not just retail, technology, everything. And then to own one of the premier news organizations as well that's tasked with covering that out, that company is, it's a challenge. What's it like working at News Corp while covering News Corp? Before we kind of go into some other specific stories, just in terms of big behemoths, one we haven't mentioned is News Corp, um, which, you know, is, is under uh, the Wall Street Journal is under there. You've been with the Wall Street Journal for a long time. And, and I am curious, you know, the Wall Street Journal does feel as unlike maybe some of the other News Corp properties that, that you know, like the New York Post and Fox News may be more tied together than, say, the Wall Street Journal is. But, you know, how is it being a media reporter in particular at a News Corp property and, and, you know, having to kind of navigate those waters. I mean, I will say, and I'm not, you know, I'm not drinking company Kool-Aid here. I'm just saying my own experience. I even said this on, on CNN uh, once a few years ago. You know, there's not a Rupert Bat phone on my desk where he calls up and says, you know, you know, write this, do that. Uh, I covered the Fox News situation with Bill O'Reilly with a lot of the harassment suits. I'm not going to sit here and say all of that isn't a challenge. We have a strong vetting uh, editorial process for all our stories. It was no different for those stories. We we broke some some news on those stories that I'm proud of. Obviously, yeah, other publications you know, it did a heck of a lot, uh, you know, on it all as all as well. And I'm not going to say that it's not, you know, something in the back of people's minds. Anytime you're writing about your own company, it's uh, it can be a challenge, not only for the reporting side of it, but for everyone, everyone else. But I think for the most part, you know, we do a good, fair job uh of of doing it you know we we broke and i know it's easy to look at oh well of course the journal broke the story about news corp and fox wanting to recombine i mean who else would break that but the journal trust me there was no help from anyone at news corp or fox they weren't ready for that story to come out they certainly weren't eager to have have it come out uh with us uh but we had enough sourcing to you know get it through our editors and and get it out there so it's you know that's but it's it's a challenge it's like any institution you know, we recently had an editor change at the paper and uh you know we're reporters we hear things we're, we try to con confirm them and get them out there but again it, it's just can be very very tough so it's a lot easier to write about someone else's company than your own <laughs> yeah right right yeah it, it can get complicated but you know i'm sure there's 
benefits and, and drawbacks to it all. Um, but uh, navigating those waters is, is an interesting one. Um, so one of the things uh, you had this great uh, Q and A uh, as part of the the Wall Street Journal. I guess this WSJ plus, um, which uh, I, I don't know. Everything has a plus now. So this was this was another another plus. Uh, you know, get get to know the reporters there, become a subscriber. Um, but you you said this comment. You said I'm primarily a business reporter, but I'm always on the lookout for stories to break up the monotony. And you mentioned this a couple of times. And I think you know, just in in uh, knowing you a little bit, you actually in your your Twitter bio has a contrarian curmudgeon provocateur, uh, among other things, a lifeboat in a sea of turds. Um, how much do you think about, about doing things differently than, you know, the, the overall kind of consensus, especially among, among media reporters, you know, the, the winds drifting one way and trying to look at it in a different way. How much of that is, do you think is conscious in, in the work that you do? I mean, I think, I think I and and my colleagues as well. I, I, I think we're always trying to you know, bring something different to the coverage. Now, that doesn't mean create a narrative where there where there isn't one. You know, we we don't we don't do that. But we try to look at all the sides of the story and all the points, and you try to maybe find some stuff that's important that people aren't necessarily focusing on, whether it's a business strategy or a recent hire, just you know, to bring something else to the story uh, is, is important. I mean, that's something I, I would assume every good reporter wants to do. I, I think at the journal, we have a very high, high bar for that. And, and there's two, of course, there's multiple types of stories you do on any given day. There's the breaking news story, something happens, but boom, you, you write it up, you update it as you gain more knowledge. And, and then maybe a day or two later, you can step back and sort of do a deeper dive. And then there's the bigger sort of featurey business stories that the journal is known for. They're called leaders, the big page one stories or the Saturday exchange stories. And a lot of work goes into laying out just what that story is going to try to say, how it's going to try to say it, is what it's saying a valid point to make? Are we going down the right road? Uh, it, it has to pass, pass a lot of stress tests almost before you begin uh, the reporting and the writing. I mean, of course, there's reporting and writing that goes into everything and you take a, a thread you've picked up somewhere and see if you can't find some more threads and connect it and, and make something bigger. But yeah, at the, at the journal, I mean, I think it's one of the, the strong points is that there's a lot of thought about how those threads play and what parts of it can we, what things can we illuminate that people aren't getting elsewhere. Coming up, we get personal with Joe on his dad and on the pervasive flyover bias in the press. That's next, but first, it's been a couple months now since the apparent crimes of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been exposed, and subsequently, the enablers of his fraud in the media have been exposed as well. You'd think there might be universal introspection at this point, but Instead, some in the press have appeared to double down, hoping to justify their ridiculous coverage of SBF in the first place. Take the latest softball from the New York Times, attempting to launder SBF's reputation by telling a story through the locals in the Bahamas where he had been conveniently hiding out for a while. Listen to this tweet. In the U.S., Sam Bankman freed his persona non grata, but in interviews across the Bahamas, residents say that his crimes were hardly comparable to the gang violence of the island and expressed fears of economic fallout if crypto investors don't return. The entire story is embarrassing. I think he had a good heart, 
says the first local quoted in the piece, and later, I feel bad for him. But it is the quote in the tweet that is most notable. Residents almost universally said that while the white-collar nature of his crimes was troublesome, they were hardly comparable to the gang violence that pervades some corners of the island, writes author Rob Copeland. Sure, the residents they wanted to talk to to soften the landing about SPF's crimes against everyday Americans who he stole from. But the Times is hardly alone, and now the kid glove treatment is getting applied to SPF's former girlfriend, who has now turned on him, Caroline Ellison. The Washington Post profiled Ellison recently with the headline, Caroline Ellison wanted to make a difference. Now she's facing prison. Oh, poor Caroline. She just wanted to make a difference. From the article, Ellison's mother and father are economics professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her father, who wrote math textbooks for kids, got her into math at a young age. She read a lot, too, tackling a thick Harry Potter book when she was just five because she was too impatient to wait for her parents to read it to her. Barely getting mentioned in the piece is the reality. Ellison was SBF's willing accomplice in defrauding people out of their money. So why is there such a rush to humanize these criminals? It can't be just that their crimes are vague and confusing, or that they are white upper-class nerds, qualities shared by many in New York City and D.C. newsrooms, although those elements don't hurt either. No, it's a panic about culpability, and a media that showed such a keen disinterest in the duo before, enabling their rise in crimes, is now trying to work overtime to justify their own inaction. More with Joe Flint coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Yes, Fourth Watch has now gone independent in 2023, and paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content from original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole to the full podcasts each episode. Check it out for just five bucks a month or $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. And now back to Joe Flint. It's a testament to to the work that that you do that you know gets a lot of pickup because people, it's it's different than than others. I mean, there's so much, not just in you know the aggregation of reporting, but even in just reporting itself. That is just this this sort of group think that goes along with it. You know, I've I've written about kind of the Acela Media, the New York and DC, right. and I know you're you're out of that. You're in LA, although it's got its own little bubble there. Maybe in some ways, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, um, we have the four hundred five, the the four hundred five and the ten media. <laughs> okay, got it. Yes, right. We'll have a different a different term for that one than the Acela. But but yeah, you know, I I I was in New York for a long time. I knew you were in New York also at, at one point, right? And so yes. it's like, you know, um, how much do you think that plays a role in just the you know, I guess in sort of the group thing that, that comes along with it, not just in opinion, but in in sort of thinking about what's important, what are, what do people care about? Because these right. are these are what the people I know care about. Yeah, I mean, I'll bring up a specific example, and of course, I'm going to talk about one of my own stories, so it's going to seem like I'm patting myself on the back, but it also I think works uh, is an example to your to your question. And uh, part of it may be being in Los Angeles and having some distance, and maybe that gives me a different perspective. But a few years back, when ABC abruptly got rid of Michael Korn, the head of GMA, a rising star, someone who was seen as a potential candidate to be president of the ABC News. Now, part of it is the media, we're all overwhelmed. News is coming at us all the time. It's write it out, throw it out next. And that one was one of those things. I was like, people just wrote these little things. Um, uh, Walt Disney Co. says uh, Michael Korn has left the uh, left the company. And that was it. 
And I'm thinking, well, something must have happened here. This guy was a hot shot. He, he would ever, you know, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about he could be the successor to James Goldston, maybe. And they're looking for a new, new pre- news president. What's going on here? And I don't cover the news business. I mean, you know this. I don't cover the news business the way Brian Stelter did at the time, the way Oliver Darcy does, the way Dylan Byers does. These people who live and breathe, I call them. You know, kind of call them the navel gazers, but uh, I mean it with love guys, yeah. uh, but they're really into this. And I just, I was just, I kept waiting a day or two. Well, surely someone's going to come back to this with a second day story of what led to, to Michael Korn. So I got curious. I mean, I barely knew the guy. I talked to him once or twice for stories, but I just got curious and started making some calls and lo and behold, started to pull on some threads and found out, oh, there was some sort of an investigation. Oh, there was this. Oh, there was that. And suddenly, you know, a whole different story from whatever little narrative had been put out there was uh, was out there. And that's what I think is sort of important. And, and I get it. We all get a little crazed with the news coming at us and we all want to do our first day analysis and move on the same thing happened when disney pushed out peter rice the narrative was bob chapek then the ceo was shoving out his potential successor uh it's a great narrative it wasn't exactly accurate and yeah as i went on to do more reporting a week later came with a story that well actually there were a lot of factors involved here with with peter and his clashes with other executives on the corporate side of disney that kind of led to this sort of moment but uh so that's one thing i mean i certainly try to do is not necessarily accept whatever the conventional narrative is at the time um it's funny uh a lot of people writing about the disney uh what might be a proxy fight coming up with an investor nelson peltz and and disney and one of uh you know uh, one of some of the people who write sort of the disney point of view say well it's not fair to pick on disney for being you know having problems with streaming netflix had a 10-year head start and someone wrote a comment into uh to puck which had written that and the comment which you know they printed it puck so i give him credit for that was well, isn't that what you know? Disney execs, that's what you have a whole group of people there to do, to analyze and see where the industry's going. So it's not that Netflix was 10 years ahead. It's that Disney was 10 years late. Um, and I just thought that was sort of an interesting thing. It's like, yeah, we always sit here and go, well, Netflix had a great head start. It's true. Part of it was that Netflix didn't have the baggage of being a traditional media company. So they could think, what if, whereas... At these other companies, it's what if, and then it's like, oh, but we'll we'll mess with that, 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 that. Long way around to your question, but the point is, I do, you know, I think we all try, certainly at the at the journal, to see what sort of other narrative besides what's out there is likely. Yeah, I mean, well, so many different ways to go with that, um, but but yeah, certainly it seems like there's as much about what gets covered as, as a story about what doesn't get covered, and you know why it doesn't get covered. Like you're talking about, you know, um, there was a, a tweet that you said actually was in, in reply to uh, to Dylan Byers uh, a little little bit ago, but um, you you wrote that uh, HBO makes shows everyone says they watch but don't, while well, Discovery makes shows everyone watches but denies it, um, and it's you know it's it's good. I it's it made me think about the fact that first of all, I, I like HBO shows like Success. I'm into all that, but I also just started watching like Yellowstone and I'm now through season four and I'm like, I don't understand why this didn't, didn't get more coverage like for, for, for five years, six years. I mean, it, it was a, you know, hugely popular show. I think it was well-made and, and interesting. And you would think that they would get these, these think pieces, but, um, 
but the things that don't get covered sometimes is just because of like you're talking about it's kind of a a general consensus conventional wisdom kind of just gels around it and and it it affects what gets covered and what doesn't also it's a flyover bias, basically. And I will give credit to my colleague, John Jurgensen, who, you know, a few years ago was writing about Yellowstone and its popularity outside of the coastal, uh, you know, uh, the coastal elites and how it had this growing audience. But yeah, people weren't paying attention to it, just like for years and years. I mean, CBS is still the most popular broadcast network, but, you know, everyone's audience is shrinking. But for years, CBS would always have the number one shows. But, uh, you, know, you know, TV critics aren't writing about what happened on NCIS this week. Right. They're not writing about what's going on on uh, FBI. But you know, they they stick to their, their bread and butter and make shows that have... You know, broad appeal in in the parts of the country that aren't seen as is trend setting or the fashion makers, and and that I think I want to say in fairness has probably been a problem with m- media in general for a long time. I, I yeah. don't think this is a a new a new thing. Um, so you know, but but certainly now. Strangely enough, you would think with social media, social media has equalized so many things. That is one thing it hasn't. No, uh, if anything, no. it's sort of strengthened those cultural uh, biases and, and geographic biases, which you talk a lot about in, in your book that's coming out. So I just yeah. wanted to plug for you, but I, that, well, I wow. did read it and I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I got, you got to plug in for my book and my interview of you. I'll take that. Um, uh, you know, well, it's funny you mentioned Twitter, and that's that's another place I was I was thinking when you were when you talking about the last answer because uh, it does seem that yes, in addition to kind of amplifying the the biases. That, or you know the the flyover bias like you talk about you know i wonder how much of what gets covered and what doesn't and how is that feedback mechanism now with twitter i mean i i love twitter i'm on it way too much um and but i also you know i can see how um it takes a a, a level of like thick skin and and withstand what feels like a lot coming at you sometimes if if you're you know getting ratioed or whatever but you know th- there's another thing about it which i i think you know twitter the incentive of twitter is to get followers and to get you know and and that's not really how journalism is supposed to be you're not supposed to be like super well liked and and you know have like a huge following so i wonder about what how you think that plays into it also well yeah there is yeah, and there's playing to the to the twitter mob uh, type stuff. And I, I, for the most part, enjoy uh, Twitter is as well. And it's helped. I mean, it's helped me on multiple levels. It's it's helped with just general reporting. It's helped with sourcing. I've I've made uh, sources in the industry from Twitter who who you know follow me. We get to know each other a little, right. and 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 it helps. But that said. It's also can be a dangerous platform. Uh, you know, one of the things, and you know, you you talk about this in in, in your book, and other people have talked about it too. Uh, a reporter who's on Twitter uh, espousing their 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 views and their feelings about certain issues they may be covering, and then we're supposed to accept that they're they're neutral. Now, I am not so naive to think that every reporter is neutral. The only way you're going to have neutrality on every story is every reporter writes one story about a topic, and then they're on to another one. Right. I mean, I'm covering the industry now for the better part of you know over thirty yeah. over thirty years now. 
And so, you know, naturally, I've covered a lot of executives, some I like, some I don't like. I, I hope that my work shows that it's fair, uh, whatever I do. But that said, that doesn't mean on on Twitter, I, I, I try not to show too much of my hand. I mean, look, I'm kind of a, a snark on Twitter. Some might say jerk. I will accept that. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to think if anything, I'm, I'm at least you know, fair. And the things that I tend to critique more are about, you know, maybe a TV show. I'm not a critic, so I don't, you know, I right. can write whether I thoughts on an HBO show. It's not going to affect how I cover HBO Max, but I think part of it is up to the individual reporter, but I certainly don't wade into political commentary. There's no gain there. I mean, and yes, you'll go through my tweets and you'll find jokes I've made watching uh, debates or some other story, news political story on TV. But, you know, I rarely do I delve into actual uh, politics just because I don't think that's necessarily going to help everyone. And it doesn't matter because half the people who read me at the, it, you know, the journal, if I write something they don't like, they assume I'm some, you know, woke 24 year old. <laughs> and then if I write something that uh, those guys don't like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm some, you know, okay, boomer, you know, one of those. <laughs> right. So can't really win. <laughs> no, you know, you know, you definitely can't. Well, you know, in, another thing you mentioned in the WSJ Plus uh, interview was uh, your dad uh, was a, was a longtime reporter and was based in Detroit. Um, and you know that I, I know he looked like he went to New York at one point, but but you know spent a lot of his time in you know the Midwest and in Detroit, and you know that kind of outsider from what is the traditional basis, you know, seems like it it could have an effect also. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, growing up, I I, uh, I always primarily knew my dad as a, uh, you know, covered a lot of the car industry, of course, you're from, from yeah. Detroit, and that became a specialty. But he was in Detroit for the New York Times in the in the 60s and, and early 70s. So oh, he was covering urban unrest. He was covering, he went to you know, Kent State after that, because, you know, just hop in the car and drive to Ohio. He was covering, he did a story, front page story on the New York Times on the last uh, American soldier killed in Vietnam, uh, who happened to be from from Michigan. So he did a, a lot of uh, general, what what I would call just good old grunt, grunt reporting. And, uh, you know, ultimately, he was a business and finance reporter. That is what he was, you know, most well known for. And he actually had worked at the journal prior to the times in the late 50s, early 60s. And just to be clear, by the time I was interviewing at the journal, no one knew who my father yeah. was. So I, I wish I could claim some sort of nepotistic was advantage. Was it wasn't really much of a, much of one there. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think there's some things that I you know I picked up from him. I did. I don't think I realized it at the time, but I look at sometimes our our writing styles. I think are similar in that we both neither of us try to you know use a thousand words when ten will do, and not try to show how intellectual and erudite we are, and you know flowery phrases. Just kind of old school, you know, what happened, what it means, why did it happen type, type journalism, yeah. uh, not really showy or flashy. And uh, yeah, he went on to work at Forbes for like the last 30 years. And they're really focused on economics and, and auto. But yeah, that would be my main takeaway. And it was on both sides of my family. My grandfather on my mother's side was a Detroit Free Press editor. And, uh, you know, well, we're uh, 
you know, talk about my family heirloom. He won a Pulitzer in the 50s oh, wow. for editorial writing. Uh, so I am not going to surpass, like like most of today's generations, I will not surpass either my father or grandfather in terms of journalistic accolades. Uh, <laughs> I might be making a little more money, but that's just the economy and inflation. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, but you you have uh, what did I, I read in your bio? You're the the dean of media reporters, and I I, I think that's a fair. Assessment. Well, I said that. I like it. I like it. I think you know. But listen, you've been you've been you know at the game. For for, as you talk about, you know, decades uh, of covering the media. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, uh, kind of ending this up before the lightning round here, um, what do you make of, of media reporting in 2023? I, I'll i throw something out at you and, and then you can take it wherever you want. I've been thinking about something I've, I've been kind of loosely calling vibes-based journalism, which is basically like, I talk to a few people and from those conversations, here's what is happening and no, no real quotes, just kind of like, here's the vibe, you know, it's just, and, you know, I, I think that it's, it's something that's broader than this. Although I will say, like, I was thinking about it while reading a Dylan Byers uh, piece recently, but it's just, I, I wonder what you think of, of the industry now, where it stands. And, and also, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, you're at an institution. I think the institutions have real power and necessity. And then there are also the other end of the spectrum where people, frankly, like me with Fourth Watch, I don't have an editor who looks at it I, a lot of, you know, and, and there, there's an independence and there's some pros to that, but there's also some drawbacks also to just being able to like hit publish and all of a sudden, you know, no one else saw it except you. And now it's just out in the world. Yeah. No. Well, first, just to go back, I, I wrote that bio myself. So just to be clear, I called myself self that. And yeah, now that Bill Carter, you know, former you know legendary New York Times media reporters uh, retired, I feel I feel safe. I can. I you know, if Bill was still reporting. I would uh, I, I would keep that title with him. But it was just You're a joke. Uh, but uh, but having said that, yeah, I mean, I, I think before talking about how media reporting has changed, just how the media. And covering stuff has changed. You know, I one of my first early beats was covering the Federal Communications Commission and, and Capitol Hill. And there used to be a lot more hearings in Capitol Hill about regulations, TV, cable TV, all that stuff, and the FCC. And you could go into those places. You could walk around. You had your little ID. And, you know, you could pop in on an FCC commissioner's office and just shoot the breeze for 20 minutes or talk with some lawyers who work there and just, you know, gather old school what's going on at the FCC or what, you know, maybe you know, actual stuff. And look, I haven't done it in 30 years, but I'm just going to guess with all that's happened in the world, you oh, yeah. can't just cruise through and spend a few hours making the rounds at the FCC or on Capitol Hill. So, and these companies themselves that we cover, uh, you know, they seem to have three publicists for every reporter. So yeah. you're constantly, I, I once said to a guy, uh, who worked in corp comms at a company I cover that I'm the snake trying to crawl under the fence and you're the guy with a baseball bat trying to whack me as I crawl through the fence. So I just think all of that, it's just access has gotten tougher. We have this thing out here every twice a year called the TV press tour, Television Critics Association. Yeah. It's mostly for networks and streamers to show their new shows and bring producers out to meet people and everything but execs used to come too and execs would do press conferences and give their state of the industry and very few do that now and so not only do they not come they're not even in the back of the room where you could go schmooze them and chat they right. they just they it's like told stay home uh so it's it's just gotten a lot uh tougher 
And in terms of um, what you're talking about now, I mean, you know, the, the vibes reporting, my fear is that, uh, you know, there may be some folks out there who their vibe reporting is having a conversation with themselves yeah. in a mirror and then putting that on a page. Uh, um I do think one of the things any journalist has to be wary of, and I'm including myself, I'm going to be 58 in a few weeks. I've been at this a long uh -huh. time. I have to keep meeting new sources. I have to keep you know, going out there. I can't always rely on the same you know, two or three people I talk to. They may be valuable and helpful, but if I'm not keeping my contacts up to date and my Rolodex, to use an old word, up to date, then I may be missing things or missing different viewpoints on what's going on in the industry. And it's tough. It's it's tough because instinct is to fall back on what I what I know and the people I know and uh, yeah, and that sort of thing. And, and I can't. I have to you know keep that intellectual curiosity up to meet new people, to learn new things. And I just think, you know, that's the challenge for any journalist now. And I will say there's a lot of great stuff. Look, I, you know, I don't know how many people are going to watch this or not watch this. Yes, I make some fun of of Puck on on uh, online. Uh, they've made some fun of uh, of us as as well here and yeah. there. So give or take. Uh, but they do some good stuff. They do. Matt Bellany is plugged in. He pops some news and does some good stuff. And and uh, yeah, I think uh, you, you know I give Dylan some props. He he broke Chris Licht going to CNN. He was the first out with that. Uh, so kudos there. Um, but and and Ankler as well. I think they do some 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 good stuff. But I also just think sometimes it's. It's opinion being masked as news or what's happening. And that's where I think the fine line has to be. You're either one thing or you're another, or at least label it. This is my column. This is some actual news. Right. Um, and that's, I think it gets tricky because then if you write something and you get it wrong, it's easy to fall back on. We're just a gossip. It's called yeah, what I'm yeah. hearing. That was what I was hearing. What's the problem? And I'm like, well, the problem is, believe it or not, in a short period of time, you have built up a platform and you set an agenda. So when you say in April, Apple has direct has the Sunday ticket deal all locked up, every other publication then set that in their mind as the narrative. Now, I didn't and it wasn't Apple and I broke who did get it. You know, yes, again. Three times I've patted myself on the back nice. today. But that's where I get concerned. It's like, okay, so when you get that wrong, it's just what I'm hearing and it was gossip and you're taking it too seriously. But when you get it right, you're the smartest guy in the room. More with Joe Flint, including the Fourth Watch Lightning Round. What does he think of Greg Gutfeld and Brian Stelter? Available for paid subscribers of Fourth Watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free, not you get for free, at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. Download, follow, like, comment uh, on this show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out here. Back soon. 